Hello there. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We want to hear what you think about Ripple. Please help us out by filling out a short, anonymous survey at ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. That's ripplepodcast.org backslash survey. In the United States of America, basically anyone, including foreign nationals, can submit a Freedom of Information Act request. You can reach out to a government agency and ask them to provide you with records that you suspect exist. Legally, federal agencies are required to respond to your FOIA request within 20 business days. It is very likely that they won't give you what you're asking for within 20 business days, but they do at least have to respond. If you've never filed a FOIA request, I highly recommend doing so. It's a lot of fun. I wanted records pertaining to this. Good afternoon. Yesterday, seven crewmen aboard working Vessel of Opportunity vessels were medevac to West Jefferson Hospital after several of them reported experiencing nausea, dizziness, headaches, and chest pains while performing offshore response operations. A medical emergency from May 26, 2010, wherein cleanup workers had to be medevac to a hospital and 125 vessels were recalled from the Gulf as a precaution. Officials from the Coast Guard and BP suggested several possible causes of the workers' symptoms. As you all know, the uh, heat and humidity in Louisiana can be challenging. It's possible that just by being around the odor of petroleum, for some individuals, are sensitive to it. Food poisoning is clearly a big issue, and it's something we have to be very, very mindful of. But those who claim to have had information from the hospital that treated the workers reported something else at the time. I was being told by the emergency room people. All of the symptoms were typical of chemical exposure. Uh, It's chemical poisoning. So which was it? Chemical exposure or heat stroke? Chemical poisoning or food poisoning? Unified Command said at the time that the Coast Guard, BP, and OSHA would be investigating the incident. Did they ever do so? And if they did, what did their investigations conclude? To try and answer all those questions, Betsy Shepard, Ripple's senior reporter, filed a bunch of FOIA requests. And the two of us found ourselves navigating a bureaucratic hedge maze. All right, hold up. Give me a level, talk. Check, 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 can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you really well. Okay, cool. So um, you got a FOIA response from the Coast Guard. You were just filling me in. I'm at a rest stop in Alabama. Go. Okay, so um, for one thing, they said that uh, they say, this is our final response to your um, Freedom of Information Act request. All Deepwater Horizon documentation and reports are publicly available at the Outer Continental Shelf National Center of Expertise. Okay. Where, where, <laughs> where is that? It says it's in Houma, Louisiana. You reached out to OSHA as well, right? I did. I reached out to OSHA, but apparently there are no, they have no files related to this event. So I appealed it and I sent them, you know, the recording of the press conference uh, where it says that OSHA was investigating it. I sent them press releases. I sent them news articles as backup evidence, um, you know, uh, pushing back against their claim that they don't have documentation. And I've never heard any, I've never heard back from about the appeal and I've called and emailed, um, no update on the appeal. So, um, okay. Fantastic. 
I mean, well, so, not fantastic. I mean, the opposite of fantastic is what I mean. To say. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it is just funny that like they keep like referring us to other like the Outer Continental Shelf National Center of Expertise, also known as OCSNCOE. Do they have Do they have a brick and mortar office that we could just go to? There is an address. It's in Houma, Louisiana, so we should plan to go there. Yeah, let's go there. Betsy continued pulling the thread on the question of what happened to the medevaced workers. And at the same time, I wanted answers to this question. Could a chemical dispersant really be responsible for the symptoms reported by cleanup workers? In short, is Corexit toxic to humans or not? From Western Sound and APM Studios, I'm Dan Leon. This is Ripple. In 2010, BP was preparing to defend itself against an imminent deluge of lawsuits. And the company had hired researchers to study the impacts of the spill. They made sure any research that was done was done under their supervision. This is Wilma Subra, a chemist who advocated for workers during the spill. And I looked into what she was alleging here. I found that some researchers hired by BP were contractually prohibited from sharing or publishing their research. They also had to agree that if there was a court order for their research, they would delay providing their research if BP fought the order. Did they ever try to hire you? No, no, no. no. But a lot of people tried to find people at universities to, to hire, to evaluate it, and they couldn't. They had already been hired by BP. No, and nobody's going to talk to you. Nobody will talk to me? No. Why not? Because that was what they signed. No disclosure mm. as well. But I'm a nice person to talk to. I, I feel like... That Money, was... honey. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness, the NDA that I saw only had restrictions for three years, but I took her point. If I was going to be looking into studies about the toxicity of Corexit, I should be mindful about who paid for them. Fair enough. Let's start with the EPA's own studies on Corexit. In 2010, after BP rebuffed their directive to switch to a different dispersant, the EPA tested Corexit's toxicity in comparison to seven other dispersants. The EPA concluded that all the dispersants tested were generally no more or less toxic than one another. Basically, they said there wasn't much difference. This appeared to validate BP's position that there wasn't a need to switch dispersants. But there's the study I see referenced most often by critics of Corexit. It was published in 2013. As far as I can tell, it wasn't linked to the EPA or funded by BP. And when it dropped, it caused a bit of a stir. My name is uh, Dr. Terry Snell. Most of my career I have engaged in uh, research on ecotoxicology. Dr. Snell has spent most of his career studying the effects of human-made chemicals, or toxicants, on organisms. He and his team at Georgia Tech became aware of the unprecedented use of dispersants in the aftermath of the spill. We started to wonder whether the application of dispersants on the oil spill were uh, advisable, or what were the consequences, actually. So the EPA tested Corexit's toxicity against other dispersants. 
But Dr. Snell's study asked a fundamentally different question. Which is more toxic, crude oil alone or crude oil mixed with Corexit? In essence, is our cure for an oil spill worse than the disease? They performed their tests on something called a rotifer, a creature I confess I'd never heard of. What is a rotifer? What does it look like? A rotifer is an animal, and it has uh, fully differentiated reproductive systems, nervous systems, uh, digestive systems, and so forth, locomotion systems. It's one of the smallest uh, animals there are. It's only on the order of, say, a half a millimeter in size. So you can barely see them with your naked eye swimming around in water. And why are they ideal for these types of tests? One is that they're, they're small and they reproduce quickly. Their lifespan is only about seven days at 25 degrees. So that you can see the results of a toxic exposure very quickly. So Dr. Snell and his team exposed these tiny critters to four substances. Number one. A control, which was basically seawater. Number two corrects it by itself. Number three. The crude oil by itself. And critically, number four. A mixture of Corexit and the crude oil. And here's what they found. The oil by itself and the Corexit by itself actually had similar toxicity. And we compared that to the combined treatment where the oil was dispersed with Corexit. And that gave us substantially more toxicity. Now, we also did uh, different ratios, a 1 to 10 ratio, Corexit to oil. So we did permutations like that. And I think the, the big, biggest difference we got was like 52 times. 52 times? 52? 52 times more toxic than the uh, Corexit or the oil by itself. When looking at a 1 to 10 ratio, Corexit to oil, Toxicity increased by 52 times, or 52.48 if we want to be exact. But Dr. Snell cautioned that we don't actually know what the ratio of Corexit to crude was in the real-world setting. So maybe one area was more concentrated, another area was far less. With all the variables, we don't know. But nonetheless, for those who wanted more attention on the issue of Corexit, this study was ammunition and criticisms of Snell's research soon followed. They criticized our lack of analytical chemistry on the water-accommodated fraction. Basically, some scientists claimed that Snell and his team didn't properly account for how oil itself dissolves in water. But Dr. Snell later noticed a pattern with some of these critics. The criticisms that were actually published in the scientific literature came from scientists who had a connection to BP. To me, that didn't really matter because what they were saying was actually uh, a serious scientific criticism, but there, re there were really no criticism of the biological effects. You stand by what you found, despite the criticisms. So the overall toxicity, which is what we were concerned about and what we were measuring, um, was what we observed. Yes, we stand by that, and other people actually have so the work has been repeated with many different other organisms, and they generally find the same result. That is, that the dispersed oil is more toxic to the organism that they tested than either Corexit by itself or the uh, undispersed oil. 
That is a well-established observation now that reinforces our conclusion. What Dr. Snell said there is true. This is an observation that's been made in studies focused on other small organisms. And Dr. Snell explained to me how these species can act as canaries in the coal mine for larger organisms, like us, like human beings. But regardless, I wanted to speak to someone who got a little closer to testing the effects of the mixture of Corexit and crude oil on people. And that's a lot more difficult to study. Because in the world of science, you're typically not allowed to just expose human beings to chemicals, willy-nilly, to see what happens. Hello. Hello. I'm not sure if you can help me, but um, is this a front desk or is there? This is not the front desk. Who are the Coast Guard? Okay, so I'm a reporter doing a story about the BP oil spill. I submitted um, records requests to the Coast Guard, and they sent me to this location to the outer continental shelf center. Right, and nobody is there or answering. The lights seem to be off. Do you happen to have any way? Because I tried calling the number, and it just goes to an emergency line. Betsy told me that her visit to the Outer Continental Shelf National Center of Expertise was a bust, which we were expecting, but due diligence, we had to give it a shot. The agency was just a small room in a building of other small rooms in Houma, Louisiana. Some staff were supposed to be working there, but weren't for some reason. Is there any way I could grab, like, an, uh, at least a contact number for some, like, trying to figure out? I just want to schedule something so that next okay. time I come back, there's yeah. somebody here. Uh, I'm not allowed to give out personal cell phones. Okay. Let me... Is there I, an office number or something? I, I didn't have... They didn't have an office number. Can I give you their email address? Sure. Let me... Okay. I did try to email them. Didn't hear back, so I know sometimes stuff just gets kind of caught up in the bureaucracy. (laughs) This was a lot of effort to get an email address we already had, but that's how it goes. And remember, directing us to the OCSNCOE was the Coast Guard's, quote, final response to our request for the documents about the sick medevac workers. Eventually, we got a final response from OSHA as well. Remember, there was a press conference that stated OSHA would be investigating the incident. But in their response, they wrote, Despite the press report that you reference, it, meaning OSHA, did not investigate the May 26, 2010 incident you reference, because the agency did not have jurisdiction over the rig, which was located approximately 40 miles offshore. I don't mean to be flippant, but this response doesn't make any sense to me. Our FOIA request was about crew members who were airlifted from a Vessels of Opportunity boat. We didn't ask anything about a rig. If they're referring to the Deepwater Horizon, at the time the workers were medevaced, that rig had been at the bottom of the ocean for over a month. So it's unclear how OSHA's lack of jurisdiction over an oil rig means anything here. This is about the Vessels of Opportunity program. And we would have loved to have asked more, but that was OSHA's final response. I told you FOIA requests are fun. We'll be right back. 
see what we got here. I love to cook. It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy, and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code ripple50 at factormeals.com slash ripple50. All right, I am set for the week. Ripple is brought to you by you. That's right, we're public media, and donations from you, our audience, are an important part of our budget. You help cover the cost for this type of on-the-ground reporting that you're hearing in this episode. This kind of work out in the field takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of resources. So give what you can to help us out. Every donation makes a difference. And it's easy. You can even use PayPal and Apple Pay. Go to ripplepodcast.org slash donate. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. While Betsy kept searching for the medevaced workers in Louisiana, I was about 500 miles southeast. I'd been driving for a couple days, and right when I landed in Seminole Heights, Florida, the entire neighborhood lost power. The Airbnb hosts ran over and graciously gave me some candles. What in God's name? A bug got in when they opened the door like a, a flying beetle, and it just flew into one of the candles, set itself on fire, and died. That was my welcome to the state of Florida. I was in Seminole Heights to talk to Dr. Danielle Reed. She's got a doctorate in environmental health toxicology, and she lived through the BP oil spill. I was in Louisiana. I had just finished my degree, and quite honestly, I was doing a lot of community work. Um, We were actually in the trenches helping community members who were living near an oil refinery, and they were having a lot of unexplained problems. Dr. Reed's work centered on inhalation studies, researching the health effects of what we breathe. And from that vantage point, the aftermath of the spill was troubling. I knew that we didn't know what was out there, and a lot of us was breathing it in. Nobody knew when you mix a dispersant in crude oil what happens, you know? So she chose this as her dissertation topic. As far as how her study was funded, the lab she worked in at Tulane University 
had received a grant. Part of that money came from BP. The crude oil was also supplied by BP, and Nalco, the manufacturer of Corexit, provided vials of the dispersant. But it wasn't easy to get those vials, and they came with conditions. That took a lot. Of, yeah, that took a lot of work, but we we were able to what, to get. What kind of work? What do you mean? What were some? Of the... Um, just a lot of clauses because, of course, no liability being held there. If we do find something, you're getting this, but it's strictly for science purposes. Beyond that, she didn't report any influence from BP or Nalco over her study. Dr. Reed says that Nalco provided a few different versions of Corexit. And she observed that there were actually two different formulas being used in the Gulf. One was 9500, corrects it. Then there was another one called 9527. A major difference between corrects it 9527 and 9500 is that 9527 contained something called 2-butoxyethanol. Excessive exposure to that can cause problems in red blood cells, the liver, the kidneys. But 2-butoxyethanol is not on the ingredient list for Corexit 9500. Dr. Reed's study tested both formulas. Um, we started testing in humans. And so when I say humans, is we used a human cell line. Um, we chose cells that are actually found in our lung tissue. And essentially, we just grew the cells and we, we put them under different conditions as if they were a person. Dr. Reed and her team exposed the lung cells to different mixtures of Corexit and crude, simulating different types of exposures. We did two hours, eight hours, and 24 hours, um, and we used different doses. Then they looked under the microscope. We first looked at, well, what happens to the cell? Does it die? Does it live? And if it lives, what really is going on? At 24 hours of exposure to various doses, what was left was a massacre. They're all dying. With both 9527 in oil and 9500 in oil, all the lung cells were dead. At lower doses, they're surviving. But just because they're surviving, we had to figure out next, okay, if they're living, what's happening in the body? Is the cell repairing itself? And we looked at DNA because that is the heartbeat of a cell. Their study also measured damage to DNA within the cells. Dr. Reed guided me through their findings, showing me graphs and charts. Okay, so these are the DNA breaks, which are performed by a common... They found that the combination of Corexit and crude not only killed cells, but caused breaks in the DNA of surviving cells, which could dramatically inhibit their ability to repair themselves. This effect was worst at 24 hours of exposure. At only two hours of exposure, the cells were able to fix the DNA damage and survive. So the longer that the cells had exposure to the toxins, the more damage. And what we kept thinking is the more damage, the harder it is to send out those help calls to get the um, cell to repair itself. Danielle cautioned that these studies haven't been confirmed in studies with animals, so she can't make a definite association between her findings and the health outcomes people experienced. If it were up to you and money were no object, what would have been your next step 
from this study in your ideal world? Like, what would you have wanted to do next to take it kind of to the next level? We wanted to look at risk. We always look at what is the degree of risk? Um, if that person is out there collecting tar balls, what is their chances of experiencing any sort of symptoms? And often in, health, in occupational health, we have this little book that we use. The book Dr. Reed is referring to lists exposure limits for different chemicals, so the amounts a worker can be exposed to before reaching a dangerous level. And scientists have already told us what the risk is for every single chemical. So they'll tell us if it's benzene that a person is exposed to, if you go over that, we're going to have some consequences. Lower the risk. In that book, there is no mixture. At the time of the BP oil spill, if a cleanup worker asked for data, which clearly spelled out the risks of exposure to a mixture of Corexit and crude, no one could give them that data because that data didn't exist in these books. And that confused me because I wanted to know, well, how would someone, in the event this happened again, how could someone go out there and tell that person with confidence, this is your degree of risk. You can take it or leave it, you know, however you want. But um, that would have been an ultimate. Because this is, this is something that, you know, oil spills, believe it or not, they happen. They happen, they just, this was one of large scale. Dispersants, we always use them, right? But we don't have values that tell us when it's a mixture, what is our degree of risk? So then you can take all these cleanup workers and you can say, okay, let's open the book. We say, all right, you know, we've got, we're using core exit right now. We got an oil spill. You can only go out for an hour and a half and then you're coming back in. And then you can't come back out for a week. You would want that really nicely quantified. Absolutely. Because that is what, in a real world setting for occupational health, that is how we protect people. One Gulf Coast resident I spoke to said she felt like a science experiment in 2010. Another described themselves as a guinea pig. A cleanup worker summarized it all as, quote, an experimental cleanup at best. These sentiments were easier for me to understand as I spoke to Dr. Reed. If there was a lack of data about the true exposure risks of Corexit and crude, then why were cleanup workers told air sampling was enough to declare an area safe? Dr. Reed's study drew the same conclusion that Dr. Snell's did. Crude oil, by itself, was nowhere near as toxic as the mixture of Corexit and crude. I spoke with a couple experts who explained to me the theory of how Corexit and crude in combination could cause the type of symptoms reported to me by cleanup workers. Vomiting, sweating oil, memory loss, cancers. And it's actually not very complicated. I'll lay it out for you. There's volatile organic compounds in crude oil, including benzene, a known carcinogen. Corexit disperses crude oil, which makes the dangerous particles smaller when they're smaller, it's easier to breathe in the volatile organic compounds. Then there's a fatty protective layer on the skin. The dispersant dissolves that layer the same way it dissolves oil. Without that protective layer, it's easier for hydrocarbons in the crude oil to get into the bloodstream. And once these volatile compounds or hydrocarbons get inside the body, 
they start ripping it to pieces. That's the theory. We'll be right back. Let's see what we got here. I love to cook. It's one of my great joys. But when I'm working on stories under deadline, I don't have time to cook meals. And Factor is the perfect solution because the food is delicious, it's healthy, and ready to go in just two minutes. It's also a fraction of the cost of takeout. You'll have over 35 options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash ripple50 and use code ripple50 to get 50% off. That's code ripple50 at factormeals.com slash ripple50. All right, I am set for the week. The day after the workers were medevaced in 2010, a representative from the Coast Guard said the Coast Guard, BP, and OSHA would be investigating the incident. We reached out to BP, asking them what they discovered in their investigation. BP never responded to our request for comment. And Betsy had hit dead ends with both the Coast Guard and OSHA. But she also filed a FOIA request with the EPA, just in case they had something on the incident. Hello? Hey, um, I wanted to share some good news. I finally got a response from the EPA about my FOIA request for information related to the incident. Excellent. Yeah, so what is included is an incident report, which is supposedly based on interviews with the captains of various boats who were involved. There were five different boats that had members that had to be medevaced out. Let's see. Let me read you the line. It says, the captain reported that the entire crew had eaten the same food items on board. Well, this is in line with what uh, Tony Hayward was saying, uh, the CEO. In the aftermath, he also said food poisoning, correct? Exactly. But um, what really stuck out to me is that, you know, none of the other accounts from the other vessels mention anything about food. And I'll just read, Captain Blank complained of headache, diarrhea, and dizziness. He stated a strong chemical smell was particularly bad. He and his crew started feeling sick while out to sea after they smelled the chemical odor they described as bad Clorox when they encountered a reddish material they termed disbursement. Okay. In the document, they redacted the names of people that were medevaced and also like personnel on those boats who were interviewed. But I got the names of the boats. The names of the boats are Lil Murray, Mom and Dad, Big Tattoo, Windsong, and Macy Emily. And using that, I was able to get the names of the boat owners. And I've already found at least two different 
people that were the owners of the boats where people were evacuated. And one of those people was one of the people that was evacuated. Right. Uh, Betsy, this is awesome. It's really, really yeah, good. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. So, like, with their names, I should be able – most of them are, like, in the South Louisiana area still. So I'm planning to just knock on their door and, and explain what we're doing. The BP oil spill left a lot of wounds on Gulf Coast residents. When Betsy and I make contact with them and ask for their stories 13 years on, we're often asking them to dredge up memories they'd rather forget. We're asking them to re-injure themselves so we can inform the public. Sometimes they can't do it, or they don't want to, and that's their right. So when Betsy knocked on doors, maybe the cleanup workers who were medevaced were on the other side, and they didn't feel like answering. Or maybe they didn't live there anymore. Or maybe they were out on the water fishing. Whatever the reasons, on Betsy's first round of door knocking, no one answered. So when Betsy found herself in Lafitte, Louisiana, a town of about a thousand built along a bayou, she reached out to a man she knew lived in the area a man we hoped would help us out, Clint Guidry. He was the president of the Louisiana Shrimp Association in 2010, and he's the guy that gave this news interview after the medevac incident. Uh, when I left last night at the hospital, these workers were, I, I was being told by the emergency room people that they were okay and they were being stabilized. Clint wouldn't provide names of the medevac workers during that news interview. It's some people that I know. Um, I haven't, I, I, I'm not going to say any names. But maybe he would now. A lot changes in 13 years. Louis, just can you do a check, check, check? Check, 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 one, two, one, two. Clint's a proud Cajun. Third generation fisherman, Vietnam vet, a stoic type of guy. He told Betsy how he got involved in all this. When the oil started moving inshore, it shut down all the inside waters, too, you know. So we got a bunch of bad fishermen, can't go back to work. The Louisiana Shrimp Association was really influential at the time of the spill because of how many shrimpers were put out of work. Clint, using what power he had as their president, started lobbying local officials and BP. said I lobbied, and it kind of makes me feel guilty for what I did, but I I managed to get them all jobs, and they started the Vessels of Opportunity. At first, the Vessels of Opportunity program seemed like a win. But Clint grew increasingly concerned because he said the fishermen were working the front lines of the disaster without the protective gear that he thought they needed. And the reason Clint thought they needed it was because he used to work as a superintendent at an oil refinery and he knew how toxic the chemicals contained in crude oil are. Benzene at five parts per million, which is not a lot, that's not gonna burn your eyes. If it gets any more concentrated than that, it will, it will burn your eyes and choke you. In a refinery, at just five parts per million, you wear a respirator. Because Clint was hearing cleanup workers say their eyes were burning and they couldn't breathe, he estimated that the VU workers were being exposed to 50 parts per million, at which point they should have been given positive pressure masks. 
They have motorized filters that clean the air. And it, it, it really shook me up. You know, it was just, it just amazed me that it would go to such lengths not to protect people, you know? Clint felt somewhat responsible for the situation the fishermen were in because he helped get them the jobs. So he met with the Coast Guard, the EPA, and other agencies and raised hell about the lack of worker safety. And that's when the medevac incident occurred. They were all exposed to enough chemicals that they all wound up in the hospital. They couldn't breathe, coughing, uh, runny eyes, you know, just... uh, I've seen it in a refinery like that already. Clint says he spoke with doctors at West Jefferson Hospital, and they thought the workers had chemical exposure. But as we know, BP and Coast Guard officials pointed to heat exhaustion, food poisoning, chemical sensitivity. Clint believes that cleanup workers were sprayed directly with Corexit by the airplanes, or that they were exposed to Corexit in the atmosphere. He says that when he would show up at these small coastal towns to talk to fishermen, that he could smell the Corexit in the air, and the residue would get all over his car and other surfaces. The paint in the windshield would have this coating. Clint continued advocating for the fishermen, but he felt like they didn't always want his help. He went to a meeting to talk to government officials about the importance of worker safety. And to Clint's frustration, the fishermen that attended the meeting stayed quiet. After the meeting, I walked out. So I tell you what, I said, y'all kept your mouth shut, because none of them said a word. I said, y'all kept your mouth shut. I said, y'all just gave them the right to kill all of y'all. One of the fishermen responded to Clint. He said, we don't care if they kill us so long as they keep the checks coming. And I said, well, thank you very much. (laughs) And that was the end of my experience trying to help them out. Because they didn't care, they wanted the money. And uh, I just had enough of it. At that point, I said, well, I'm I'm going. I'm going over here. Try to get some money for the people who who care care about living. When Betsy asked Clint for more information about the medevac workers, he shared a new detail about where one of them was working. He was in an area where there was a lot of oil, a lot of fresh oil. <clears throat> At one time, they had him working within six or seven miles from the rig. All that oil was coming up in the area where they were at, and it was fresh out, fresh out the ground. Clint said this medevac worker was assigned to ground zero, on the water, right above the leaking wellhead. Betsy asked Clint for the name of this worker, and she got it, John Onestell. Clint actually tried calling John for Betsy, but it just went to voicemail, and Clint wouldn't give out his phone number. And eventually, Clint got tired of reminiscing about the BP oil spill. It, 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 was, it, was a, it was an experience I don't want to relive, you know. I did it once in my life, that's enough. I don't want to go back. <laughs> well, I think on that note, it's a wrap. A wrap. So, without being able to reach John Onestell, Betsy tried door knocking again. And this time, 
One of the workers answered. Hello. Hello there. Are you Douglas Blanchard? Yes, ma'am. My name is Betsy Shepard. I'm a reporter. I'm doing a story on the BP oil spill, and I'm checking in with people to, you know, see how they've bounced back. Yeah, I hear you. What you see? How you doing? I'm doing all right. Dizzy, 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 dizzy. Oh, you're still that. Real still. Oh, Thirteen years later. The last few days is the worst it's been in a while. Are you serious? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, and do you think it's from working the cleanup? I don't know. Yeah. They say no, but you know, before I went into the cleanup, before I went into the hospital, <clears throat> I just got all my blood tested and blood work and all that. No high cholesterol, no high blood pressure. And when we was in, the, uh, in that, all the disbursement, I got sent to the hospital with high blood pressure and all that. May I come in and talk to you? Yes, ma'am. Okay, come on let, in. Me, let me just grab my stuff. I'll be right back. All right. Thanks for being so welcoming. Yeah. Doug Blanchard was almost one of the people we were searching for. He fell badly ill on May 26, 2010, but he wasn't personally medevaced. He says he was on a task force that consisted of his boat, Big Tattoo, and 20 or so other boats. And they would go out spotting oil off the coast of Louisiana for weeks at a time without returning to shore. They slept out on the water. He says on May 26th, he and the others started feeling ill. They were dizzy, had vision problems. He says it eventually got so bad they had to call for help and one of his crew members was transported to a nearby hospital. But Doug didn't want to abandon his boat. He insisted on driving back to shore. So when we all got to the dock, they might have five or six ambulances and a bunch of medics taking everybody's blood pressure. And I only came to me out of high blood pressure. He initially refused to go to the hospital, and he had a back and forth with the medic who was treating him. You know, I didn't want to jump in the ambulance, so... So I asked him, what would you do? He said, bro, if you was my daddy, and I was your son, he said, I would tell you to get the hell out of here and never come back. That's all he told me. So I think he was honest. Doug relented and went to the hospital. And here is where his story gets strange. When Doug arrived, he wasn't taken inside the hospital. He says he was taken to a decontamination chamber outside and stripped of all his clothes. And they had a big tent set up with a bunch of compartments. Might have had six compartments in the thing. Like, take all our clothes off outside the hospital. Take all our clothes off, go in this little compartment, and one in a hazmat suit, they would spray the whole spot on, on the top. He says people in hazmat suits came up to him. You go in the next compartment, the guy would, would spray soap on you. You go in the next compartment, he give you a brush. You know them big handle brushes? You have to scrub yourself. Go in the next compartment, they would rinse you off again. Go in the next compartment, they give you a towel, they dry off. Outside with a towel naked, sitting down over there. Doug was confused. If he hadn't been exposed to some kind of dangerous chemical, why did he need to be decontaminated? He was also confused because he says the clothes they stripped him of were confiscated. Our shoes, our clothes, nothing we had on, we didn't get nothing back. 
Did they tell you why they were confiscating your clothes and shoes? I don't know why they didn't give us all clothes back. They ended up paying us some money, giving us some money for all clothes and shoes. After about a week, Doug decided to go back to work. I went back on the boat. I should have just stayed home. But when you're making money, it's, uh, you're making money while you got while the sun shines. It's a decision that Doug now regrets. Today, he has chronic neurological and breathing problems. But despite this, Doug does consider himself lucky because another worker he knew died young at the age of 56 in 2020. He got sick while he was doing BP. He was passing blood. He told me, you better go to the doctor. I mean, get out of here and go to the doctor, but when you're making two, dollars $3,000 a day, it's kind of hard to pass up for a poor shrimp woman, you know? And it just kept on and kept on and got worse, and uh, I went to see him right before he died. It wasn't too good. Everything was coming out the bottom of him. Yeah. This whole inside was eating up. That was one of the guys that um, was sent to the hospital with you. No, he was. Uh, he didn't go to the hospital. Yeah, he was. Uh, his favorite words were "suck it up." Mm. He sucked it up. Doug also considers himself lucky in comparison to another worker he knows who was medevaced in May 2010. His cousin, who he calls Weenie. Betsy asked for Weenie's real name. And it's John Onestell, the same man that Clint Guidry tried to put Betsy in touch with. John Onestell was the man we were looking for. Doug said John Onestell now suffers severe health problems, and he's become a very private person. You think he would talk to me? He might. Tell him the brasa sent you. Brasa? In other words, in French, is the stir. Okay. When you stir in a pot, it's brassi. Brassi. But he called me the shit stirrer. So I'll stir the brassi. Okay, say it one more time so I get it right. The brassi. So Betsy drove a couple miles up the bayou. She found a house next to a boat named Ramey's Wish. John Onestell's daughter, the titular Ramey, answered the door. Hi, is we knee here? Huh? Is we knee here? No. He's not? No. Okay, um, my name is Betsy Shepard, mm-hmm. and I'm a journalist doing a story about coastal Louisiana and yeah. recovery since the BP oil spill. Okay. And um, I was visiting with Douglas Blanchard, um, AKA Le Brasseur, yeah. And he, <laughs> I guess he recommended my dad. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. Yeah. So right now, yeah. Um, they not home. Well, I could give you. Watch. Hold on. Let me call my mom. Okay. Um, they're out of town. Yeah. Okay. Ramey said she would give Betsy's contact information to John Onestell, her dad, and if he wanted to tell his story, he'd reach out. So, all Betsy and I could do was wait. In the time we were waiting, I thought a lot about the phrase, suck it up. It's a sentiment I grew up with. My father would espouse the merits of sucking it up. Weeks passed before we heard from John Onestell. 
when we got word, it wasn't from John himself. Instead, we got a call from his lawyer. The lawyer said that John was still in litigation against BP 13 years later over what happened to him. He said that John is currently fighting against post-traumatic stress. He's not doing well. He warned that an interview would be very stressful and emotionally taxing for his client. But despite that, John had decided that he was finally ready to share his story with the public. He would discuss his work at Ground Zero, what happened the day he was medevaced, what's happened since, and why he's chosen to remain silent for 13 years. He agreed to be interviewed. On the next episode of Ripple, John Wanstell. Ripple is produced by Western Sound and APM Studios. It's created by me, Dan Leone, for Western Sound. Ben Adair is the executive producer. Erica Krauss is the executive producer for APM Studios. Ripple is written and hosted by me, Dan Leone. Betsy Shepard is the senior reporter and producer. Colin McNulty is the editor. Original music is composed by me, Sound design by me and Alex McGinnis. Alex mixed and mastered the show. Sarah Dealey and Stella Hartman are the associate producers. Research and fact-checking by Savannah Wright, with additional fact-checking by Betsy Shepard. Additional reporting by Haley Fox. Nick Ryan is APM Studios' senior production manager. And the executives in charge for APM Studios are Joanne Griffith, Alex Shaffert, and Chandra Kavati. To learn more about what you've heard, visit our website at ripplepodcast.org.